Well, this is uh, our four-part summer midweek fellowship series entitled Things That I Want to Talk About. Week number one was Christian nationalism, solved all the problems in the world there in week number one. Week number two was men and women and their roles in the home and the church. Week three tonight is spiritual warfare, what it is and how to engage in it. And then next week, we're going to be looking at the problem of providence. And it's really not a problem from God's perspective, but the the issue of providence and God's relationship with evil and suffering and pain and how should we posture ourselves toward that. I'm just going to dive right in tonight. Uh, I want to go quickly as possible and I want to open up time for questions tonight. And I want to, I, I, I really enjoy your questions. It helps us grow as a church. So don't be bashful if you have questions. Um, really, anything goes. Uh, in that question and answer time, I'm willing to answer any question, and I certainly am not I'm an expert on all things, but um, I want to help you as much as possible. So let's just dive right into this topic. I'm really going to ask, I'm, under two headings uh, is how I've organized this material. What is spiritual, what spiritual warfare is, and some foundational truths, and then secondly, uh, engaging in spiritual warfare as believers together in a local church. So I'm going to go pretty quick as I get on the interstate here. I'm going to hit the gas pedal, and I'm going to read a lot of scripture, make some comments along the way, and then hopefully you can ingest this all, and it will help us when we have a discussion at the end. Definition of spiritual warfare. This is written by uh, two professors, uh, Cook and Lawless. They wrote a book called Spiritual Warfare in the Storyline of Scripture, a helpful book. I consulted it a lot this past week, and then they define it as the ongoing battle between the church and the devil and his forces, with the church standing in the armor of God, this is important, defensively resisting the devil and offensively proclaiming the gospel in a battle already won. I think that every part of that definition is really important. So obviously we think about the devil and the church in conflict, but think about it as having two postures, defensive and offensive, and I can't emphasize the last three words, in a battle already won. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. Some key passages. There's many passages that refer to uh, spiritual warfare. In fact, I just did a summary of the Gospels. And there was like 39, almost 40-something passages in the, just the Gospels alone that refer to what we might classify as spiritual conflict. A majority of them are, are, are encounters of Jesus with spiritual uh, forces, the demons, but the Bible is just full. In fact, the Bible really speaks almost as if it's just a kind of uh, uh, obvious fact and truth, and it is that there is a spiritual world, an unseen world that God's people are in conflict with. But some key passages, Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 10, finally be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. So just note that the devil has schemes against the people and the purposes of God, and that our ultimate battle is not primarily with what we see, but it's with what is unseen. Paul alludes to something similarly in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, or 2 Corinthians 10, starting in verse 3. Though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. And one argument that I hope to make persistently through uh, our time tonight is that when Paul says something like verse 4, the weapons of our warfare, don't over-spiritualize that type of language. I think he's referring to what is accessible, the ordinary means of grace that are available to every Christian. The Bible, the spirit that dwells in us, the people of God. The, the, the good news of the gospel, that we wage those things against these, these arguments, these, these principalities that wage themselves against God's supremacy. And then James chapter 4, uh, verses 1 through 10, is this, I think, uh, a verse that we don't necessarily 
think about when we're thinking about spiritual warfare, but I think is the ground level of spiritual warfare. And I want to put this phrase, we've heard it before, maybe in, in sermons, but this, 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 this three-part uh, grouping, the world, the flesh, and the devil, that every Christian's fight is against this, it's called the unholy trinity, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And in this passage about really just the, the Christian life in James chapter 4, James alludes to the world, the flesh, and the devil. Not necessarily in that order. order. Actually, he talks about the flesh, the world, and the devil. But, but see if you can pick that up. He says, what causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? In other words, our flesh. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. So he's talking about your passions. Do you not know that friendship with the world? So there's a problem within our passions, and there's a problem without the world. And what is the world? It's this fallen system, this fallen culture that we'll see in just a moment is, is, is ruled in a, in, a, in a secondary sense by the devil. Do you not know, back to the verse, that friendship with the world is enmity or to be an enemy with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is, it, or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in you, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And verse 7 here, here's the final part of that unholy trinity. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. So there's just a, a, a rather ordinary verse about the Christian life, and I think it's actually talking about spiritual warfare, that we deal with this flesh in us, the residual of our old man that still abides in us, that we have to fight against, even though we're born again. The world, not speaking about the physical world, but this fallen system of that's under the sway of the evil one that, that, that we'll read about in Ephesians is like a course, like a, a river that's carrying people away from God. And then the leader of this world, the devil. So those are key passages about spiritual warfare. Let's delve into some of the key terms and figures in spiritual warfare about the devil and his demons. Letter A there. He is, first thing we need to know about the devil, is that he is a created being... And thus, not outside of God's control and purposes. And this is, we're kind of delving into what we're going to get into next week about God's sovereignty over evil and even God's mysterious and at times inscrutable purposes in even creating the devil that he knew would fall. So the devil, but before I get ahead of myself, that's like next week, the devil is a created being and he's not outside of God's control. Colossians 1, 16 and 17, for by him, this is referring to Christ, all things were created. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority, all things were created through him and for him. And that's an interesting verse because he's actually saying that the, the, the existence of the devil, and we're going to talk about how the devil came about here in just a moment, was created by Jesus and in a way for Jesus, for his glory. So he's a created being, and he's under God's purposes. And we see this played out in the life of Paul, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. This is a wonderful verse, verse 7. This is Paul reflecting on his spiritual struggle, whatever that is, his thorn in the flesh. And he says in verse 7, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being conceited. So notice what's going on in that verse. You have God using the devil against himself, sending this suffering into the life of Paul that he actually has greater intentions to produce humility in Paul for the good of Paul. Isn't that? Come on. Somebody, wake up. Come on. It's Wednesday night. Come on. That's really good. Now, you guys have heard me use this illustration before, and, and I want to tell it to you again because the culprit in this, the antagonist in this illustration is actually here with us in this room tonight. 
my brother and his, and his wife are here. I know I'm going to tell a story on him. And, you can, and he's going to try and deny it after this, but don't let him deny it. When we were little kids, we had this game where he would sort of wrap up in a blanket, and I would get to hit him and punch him wherever, and nowhere, nowhere, just shoulder below. I couldn't hit him in the face. But whenever he wanted, whenever it was done, whenever he was done getting hit on, because he was bigger and stronger than me, he would throw me down to the ground with his boxing gloves on, and he would grab my fist, and he would hit, he would use my own hands to hit my face. And that's exactly the picture of what's going on here. Don't say it didn't happen, Todd, because it did. You know it did. And what's happening here is that the devil is bringing about his plan to harass Paul, and God is superintending it, and in a sense, ordaining it to bring about his good, the fruit of humility in the life of Paul. So that's just a sneak peek into the subjugation of the devil, even in his power. So he's a created being. He was an angel who led an angelic rebellion against God. Now this is by inference, possibly alluded to in Isaiah chapter 14 and Ezekiel chapter 28. And what's going on in Isaiah chapter 14 and Ezekiel chapter 28 is the prophets are speaking uh, about actual real-life human ruler, pagan rulers who were against God's people. But the language that Isaiah and Ezekiel use seems so lofty that many people through the history of the church have speculated that it's a kind of picture of the angelic fall of Lucifer, the angel from heaven. So let me just give you a little tip. I don't have it on the screen, but just to give you a little taste of the language that, uh, for example, Isaiah uses in Isaiah 14, verse 12, speaking to this fallen throne, this earthly throne. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. So although that is a word to a real um, enemy of God's people in the moment, the language seems to be so lofty that people think it's maybe referring to Satan's fall from heaven. And then again, similarly, in Ezekiel chapter 28, uh, verse 11, it says, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, so this is Ezekiel speaking about what God said to him, Son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre, a real historical figure, and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You... And this is a word of judgment against this earthly king. You were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. And he goes on to describe these stones. And then ultimately he says, you, you fell because you rebelled against me. So although I don't think that's definitive, many people through the history of the church, even great minds like John Calvin, have felt like, what the prophets were alluding to was this fall of, uh, of, of Lucifer from, from heaven. And I think we have clues of that in, in the New Testament. For example, in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, this will be on the screen. For if God did not spare his angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to the chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. And he goes on to say, you know, if he didn't, if he didn't spare the angels, he's not going to spare false teachers in this day. Similarly, in Jude 6. Here's this inference to this possible illusion that we read about on the prophets in Isaiah and Ezekiel. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So I think we can, piecing this all together, we can say by inference that clearly God created everything. And it was good and very good. And sometime between Genesis 1 and 2 and the serpent showing up in Genesis 3 and the temptation of Adam and Eve, which is the fall from a human perspective, that they're preceding that was a heavenly fall of the angels led by, uh, by the devil, by Lucifer. And, and I think that's the historic interpretation. Although there's no verse that we can directly point to that, I think when you piece all that together, that's the clear inference. So he leads a rebellion of angels against God. And he is now um, still ruling over them. Letter C. He has, and this is important, he has been given a certain powerful jurisdiction by the Lord. Now it's been given, it's derivative, it's granted to him. Ephesians 2 says this, 
speaking, Paul speaking to the church in Ephesians about all Christians before they're born again. He says, you are dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. Again, that fallen world, that fallen spiritual entity of humanity, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So who, who's in charge of this fallen world? The prince of the power of the air. That's, that's Satan. So he has been given this jurisdiction by the Lord. There are several other references in the New Testament to him being the God of this world, lowercase g. Letter D, he commands his demons to do his bidding. We see numerous accounts in the Gospels of confrontations with Jesus and others where there are, are a legion of demons, again, part of this group of angels that rebelled against the Lord uh, even before the fall in Genesis chapter 3. Letter E, he is the father of lies who hates God, his people, and the gospel. John, Jesus, this is Jesus speaking to the religious hypocrites of his day, and he says in John 8, 44, you, and think about, think about confronting your spiritual opponents in this way. There was no, this is what Jesus is saying to people. You are of, the, of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And then we see in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, uh, Peter saying to the church, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And I want to insert there that I don't think the devil is omniscient. He's on, not, clearly not omnipotent. And he's not all present like the Lord did. He, he's confined to a certain limitation. But, but he is powerful, and his demons are numerous, and he is very active. So he hates the Lord. He hates his people. He's the father of lies. He wants to destroy uh, the, the people of God. And this is what it says in Revelation 12, verse 10. Uh, I think this is where we encounter most internally in spiritual warfare in a, in a personal sense. This is what John says, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now salvation has come uh, and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. And what is he doing? What is Satan doing? He accuses them day and night before our God. Doug Van Meter in his wonderful sermon this Sunday alluded a little bit to that, to this heavenly court between God and Satan, and Satan accusing Job before God, and God in his sovereignty. Did you notice that? Don't miss what Doug got into, that, that God actually brings Job's name up to Satan as a candidate for what happened to Job. But nevertheless, let's stay on track here that he's the father of lies. He hates God, his people, and the gospel. Letter F, this is important. As powerful as he is, he can be resisted. One verse after what we just read in 1 Peter 5, Peter says, Resist him, firm in the faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So there's this call to resist him. James 4, 7, we read it earlier. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So as powerful as he, as he is, God has given his people the ability and the means, the means of grace to resist him. And I hope this goes without saying, but we've got a bunch of people who have grown up on Star Wars, and we kind of think of, we kind of, oh, got somebody down here on the front row, and we kind of have this sense that maybe it's kind of like a, Robert, what is it, the, the, the guy with the black hat, Darth, Darth Vader, and then the, the Luke Skywalker, and it's kind of like a dual universe, or the sort of opposite, but almost equal forces opposing each other. And that can be a kind of picture that we have of good and evil, or God and the devil, but that is not the case. John, 1 John 4, 4, little children, you are from God and overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And might I say, even though that verse is inspired by the Holy Spirit, it is a tremendously understated way of saying it. He's much, much greater than he who is in the world. And even these things that the devil does, as we will see bleeding into next week, 
are under the plan and providence and sovereignty of God. In fact, there are stunning verses in the Old Testament, in Amos and Isaiah, that says that I, this is God speaking, I have created calamity. Nothing happens apart from my sovereign hand. And so as powerful as the devil is, he is under the Lord's thumb. So that's about the devil and his demons, about angels. Well, they are messengers of God. They comprise the army of God in the spiritual realm. There's this really fascinating scene in Daniel chapter 10. I won't take the time to read it, but Daniel has a vision. And in his vision, Daniel has a vision that, that, uh, that he's been praying for God's wisdom and help. And the angel, I think it might be Michael, or one of the archangels, is, is he, he comes to Daniel in this vision, and he says, man, and I'm paraphrasing here, man, I would have come earlier, but I got held up by the prince of the king of Persia, referring in context to spiritual forces, spiritual demons, like the, the, the demonic ruler of this particular realm. But, but you know, but then, but then Michael came and helped me, and now here I am. And so it's a kind of like glimpse into the heavenlies where there was this spiritual battle going on in the unseen world where this devil was holding up the angel coming to the Lord. Now that's, boy, there's a lot going on there that we could get into, but suffice it to say that, that angels are clearly real uh, and, and they are active in the spiritual realm. And what do they do? They are not only the messengers of God bringing like the word of God and and showing up to people in the Old Testament, but they are ministering spirits sent to help God's people. Psalm 91, verse 11 is a favorite psalm. That they're, they're like, they're, what's that? There it is. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. And then Hebrews 1, 14, that they're ministering spirits sent to serve God's people. So clearly angels um, are present and active just as demons are. A question sometimes people ask is, do, do Christians have guardian angels? I don't know. Jesus in Matthew chapter 18, verse 10, says something. He, he alludes to something that might be construed along those lines. He's talking about not causing other Christians to sin or stumble. And he says, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels, their meaning these people that he doesn't want you to despise. In heaven, their angels always see the face of my father who is in heaven. So some Christians have taken from that in Hebrews chapter 1 that we have personal guardian angels and Psalm 91. Maybe. Um, I don't think that's clearly not the focus of Scripture. And if we do, they're not cozy little Cupid-like things that we can kind of hug and they kiss us on the cheek and help us find parking spots. They're glorious, glorious heavenly beings. And they're doing far more important redemptive things than, you know, showing you a rainbow or something. I, I don't know, whatever. And, and I'm sorry, I'm not, I just, we watched too much Lifetime Movie Network Hallmark stuff. So, about demons, about angels, and most importantly, about what Christ has accomplished in the context of spiritual warfare. 1 John 3, 8, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. The devil has been sinning from the beginning. Let me pause there and say, boy, that's a, that's a sobering verse. I don't think clearly all Christians sin. Earlier on and John says, look, if a Christian says that he has no sin, he's a liar and the truth is not in him. But if we, when we do sin, we have an advocate, Jesus, who goes to us before the Father. I think what John is doing here, and 1 John is a, a famously uh, uh, convicting book that's meant to give us assurance, but also meant to cause us to not be complacent. He's basically saying if you're living in sin, if you're giving yourself over to sin, you're, you're really of the devil. It reminds me of that William Arnault quote, that British theologian from the mid-1800s who says that the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is not that one has no sin and the other has sin, but that the Christian is taking God's side against their remaining sin, and the non-Christian, who may be deceived and thinks they're a Christian, is taking sin side against the dreaded God and trying to justify themselves. That's where all the difference is. But that's not the main point of the verse here that I want to make. The second part 
He says that the reason, 1 John 3, 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So Christ has destroyed the works of the devil. How did he do it? Well, he did it in the cross. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13, 14, and 15. I think these are some of the most important verses in all of the New Testament to understand not just the Christian life and the gospel, but even this idea of, of, of the warfare that happens in all of our lives internally. This is what Paul says. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. So you were dead. He makes you alive. He gives you a new heart. He gives you faith. You can believe in Jesus. And with that new faith, you trust in Jesus. You're justified. And then that's what comes in next, having forgiven us all our trespasses. So there's a lot there in that comma. He made us alive and forgiven us all our trespasses. But how did he do it? What's the, what's the, what's the behind the curtain of what's going on in the cross in relation to spiritual warfare? Verse 14, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. And what's that mean? It means that there was a record of debt that stood against us. Now, where's that coming from? Is that something that the devil trots out as one of his strategies against us? No. The record of debt that stands against all of us is the law of God that shines a light on our sinfulness before a holy God. And so what's happening here is Jesus on the cross is satisfying the holiness of God. He's answering. He's paying for the debt. Who is the debt paid to? Who is the debt due? It's due to God and his holiness. Jesus propitiates. He absorbs the wrath of God. He extinguishes it. He removes it. He cancels it. He turns it into favor, gives us his righteousness. And now the primary problem of the person, which is a holy God in our sinfulness, nothing to do with the devil. It's God's holiness, our sinfulness. That record of debt has been canceled. It's been done away with by Christ on the cross. But here then is where the devil jumps in. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Now, how, where's the devil in all of this? Where's spiritual warfare in this? Verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. So what's going on there? Well, remember when we read in Revelation chapter 12 that the devil is the accuser of the brethren, the people of God, and day and night he accuses them? Well, what does he have to accuse us with? Well, he has to accuse us with our sin and our guilt before God. And in a sense, for all those that are outside of Christ, that are not born again, those accusations are true. But the good news of the gospel is that when the devil wants to accuse the people of God, and this is where warfare is, this is the fight where the devil is accusing people who've been reconciled to God, we remember the gospel and we remember what Jesus has done with that true accusation, that true sentence of condemnation. He's removed it as far as the east is from the west. And therefore, now those, Romans 8, 1, who are in Christ, there is now therefore no condemnation. And that's what happens in the gospel. So really, the only weapon that the devil has in any spiritual, eternal sense is his accusation of guilt, which is true and then is answered by Jesus' work on the cross. So there's, there, that's ground zero of spiritual warfare, is what Jesus has done on the cross. Do you see that? I can't highlight that enough. And then about the nature of the spiritual warfare in the Christian life, and I made this point earlier, and let me be quickly here, quick here, is I just want to say that we, we tend to think of spiritual warfare as like exorcisms and deliverances and all that, and we'll talk about that in just a moment, maybe any questions that you may have about that. I want to make the argument that for 99.9% .9 of the time, you can use the word spiritual warfare as a synonym for the ordinary Christian life. 
that it is something that all of us are always going through. It's called sanctification. It's called discipleship. It's called dying to yourself and living to God. And so I want to sort of make it not this sort of strange, mystical thing that only some encounter or some have a particular gift in or some are particularly plagued by and say that the nature of the spiritual warfare is real, it's pervasive, and it's ordinary. Okay, let me hurry up. Engaging in spiritual warfare as believers together in a local church. Number, letter A, the devil's strategy. Well, sin. The more he can get us to sin, he's a tempter because the more he gets us to sin, the more we, he can be, uh, his accusations will stick to us. I think about 1 Corinthians 5 where there's this man who's having a relationship with his father's wife and Paul's saying, get this man out, like purge this man from you. And he says, don't you know that a little leaven, a little sin in the church leavens the whole lump. And of course, the sin in the church all the time. We, we all have sin in our lives, but the issue here is unrepentant and undealt with sin. As somebody who's taking sin side against God, it's a church that's taking sin side against God. And not only does this apply in a, a church sense, but even in our individual lives, the de devil's strategy is to get us to sin, to get us to forget the gospel, to fall into condemnation, to wreck our confidence, and to eat us away from the inside out. Division, to cause division in the church. I think about 1 Corinthians 3, verses 3 and 4. Uh, he's, he, he's, he's alluding to the divisions in the Corinthian church, and some are saying, I follow Paul, and I follow Apollos. And he's saying, this, you're being jealous or strife among you. Uh, don't, don't, don't be like this. So division amongst the church. And, and we see that all the time in churches. False teaching. Uh, a clear strategy of the devil is false teaching. Paul is writing to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20. He says, pay attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. For I know that after my departure, fierce wolves, speaking about false teachers, will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. So spiritual warfare. So the development of, of all, the, all the heresies about the nature of Christ in the first few centuries and Mormonism and Jehovah's Witness and all the things that have developed, that, that is spiritual warfare that has led people away from God. And then persecution, which can uh, cause people to fall away from the Lord or uh, fear uh, standing up for the Lord. That's the devil's strategy. What is the church's strategy? The church's strategy in fighting spiritual warfare. Well, to preach, teach, remember, and apply the gospel. To remember what Christ has done, what we just read there. Remember Colossians chapter 2, what Christ has done. He's nailed the accusation that the devil has against us, which at some moment in our lives was right. It's now been taken care of. It's now been annulled. It's been set aside. It's been canceled. And he's disarmed rulers and authorities, and he's put them to open shame by triumphing over them. In Revelation 12, listen to this. This is beautiful. So it doesn't speak, the Bible in the New Testament doesn't speak about how we overcome by special incantations or deliverance ministries. How do Christians fight this war? Revelation 12, 12. This is right after that verse 11 that talks about the devil being an accuser. And it says, they have conquered him, meaning the devil, by the blood of the lamb. In other words, the satisfaction for our sin. And by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. So how do Christians fight? This is so clear. How do Christians fight spiritual warfare? By remembering the gospel and remembering what the gospel has done for them. I want to read to you this. I came across this earlier this week, and it's just stunning. Zechariah chapter 3. I'm, I'm jumping down into Zechariah, and it's a, it's a prophet in the Old Testament. And the context of Zechariah chapter 3 is these visions that the priest is having meant to encourage the people. They've come back from Babylonian captivity. They're rebuilding the temple they're rebuilding the city of Jerusalem. This is like during the time of Nehemiah. But listen to this vision of Zechariah, which I think is a picture. I think what this vision of Zechariah chapter, in chapter 3 is a kind of picture of the spiritual warfare and how the gospel is meant to be, the remembering the gospel, what Christ has done, is meant to be how Christians engage our enemy, Satan. Listen to Zechariah chapter 3. 
verses 1 through 5. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest. So this is a vision that Zechariah is having of Joshua, who was, you know, long since dead, but he's the high priest back in, in uh, Deuteronomy and, and, and in the early parts of the Bible. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. This is God speaking now. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua, verse 3, this is the vision that Zechariah is having. Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments as a, a picture of him standing in the guilty place for Israel. Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And that's why the devil is accusing him. Because he's got guilty. He's like, man, you're before the holiness of God and you're wearing that? And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with with his garments, and the angel of the Lord was standing by. Well, what's this a picture of, friends? Our righteousness is as filthy rags before the Lord. Come on, if you can't make this connection, I've been doing a bad job as a preacher. Our righteousness is as filthy rags before the Lord. But in Christ, he takes off our grave clothes, and we put on the righteousness of God right in front of Satan, who God is saying, I rebuke you, let me show you what I'm going to do for this person. I'm going to take off their filthy rags, and I'm going to robe them in righteousness. And that's a picture of spiritual warfare happening before the Lord in the heavenly places. Not some strange prayer, not some hullabaloo, not, not some deliverance ministry. It's the gospel. I've taken care of their sin. This is my man. He's got my righteousness. I rebuke you, Satan, the Lord says. So, so when, you when we remember the gospel, when we have these inner battles in our mind, and I say, no, that's not who I am. Greater is he that's in me than he that's in the Lord. I'm not defined by my sin. A righteous man falls seven times, but he rises again, and we confess our sin, and we fight against it. It is as if that scene is being reacted in our lives. Our filthy garments are gone. We're robed in righteousness, and the Lord says to Satan, I rebuke you in all our lives. Where am I? All right, what's going on here? What's, okay, the church's strategy. To remember the gospel, to disciple believers in good doctrine. I hope that goes without saying. I won't read those verses. Promote and pursue unity in the church. So if the devil's, one of his tactics is division, then we should guard the unity of the church and prioritize prayer. Ephesians 6. That great chapter on spiritual, the armor of God, the last aspect is pray, pray at all times. And the individual Christian strategy, I've talked about it. I'm just going to go quickly. I just want to teach you two words. Mortification, to kill. Vivification, to live. So we die to ourselves. Romans 12, we, we, or Romans 8, we, we put to death the deeds of the flesh. Colossians 3, we put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. So he's talking to Christians in Romans 8 and Colossians 3. So there's still some things that need to die. We need to, the Christian life is like two, two halves. It's killing remaining sin, and it's living to God, vivification. Ruben, or I'm thinking of Reuben's wonderful sermon a few weeks ago from Mark 8, verse 34. Let, Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, that's, that's mortification, and take up his cross and follow me. That's vivification, live to God. Galatians 5, 16, walk in the spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And what does it mean to walk in the spirit? I just think it means to be an ordinary Christian in community. Read your Bible. Hang out with other Christians. Be in community. Remember the gospel. Repent of your sin. Live in the light. This is spiritual warfare for the Christian. So I, I want to make the point, um, and we can get into questions that you may have really about anything. I, I just want to establish this foundation, that spiritual warfare, that if you're a believer, you're involved in spiritual warfare right now, and it is called discipleship. Clearly, there may be times when there are aspects of greater oppression in a person's life or in a particular situation 
But all of that is just some strange or different or unique combination of the world, the flesh, and the devil that God has given his people the resources to deal with by the ordinary means of grace. So let me pause there and ask questions, and I'll start us off with this question that kind of primed the pump. Clearly, the devil is active in our day, but it seems different than the confrontations we see with Jesus in the Gospels. Why is this? What's going on? We read about all of these exorcisms of demons in the New Testament. What's happening? Uh, what's going on? My two responses would be this, is that I think that what's going on in the Gospels are particular to the purposes of God in redemptive history. I think that all of the deliverances of people from demonic oppression or influence in the Gospels are, are, are primarily meant not to be a pattern that we should seek to have deliverance ministries, but they are primarily orchestrated by the Lord to display the authority of the Son of God in His earthly ministry. Okay, that doesn't mean that some people aren't plagued by demons today in various ways, but the purpose of these encounters that we see in the Gospels are meant to be displays of Jesus' authority, not patterns for how we should do ministry today in that particular sense. And then secondly, I would say that the changing nature of culture and the devil's strategy, um, I think in a more primitive first century culture, that was more of the devil's strategy then. But I think the devil is no less active today. But I don't think that we see that manifested in our context like we did in the first century. I think it happens in other ways. I think it happens more through government, through world opinions, through social media, through cultural arguments, through ideas strongholds that wreak havoc on people's lives, and the devil is just as active. Okay, with that, let me pause, and let's take some time to ask questions. And don't hold back. Don't be bashful. Um, it's okay if you stump me, and I don't know. And um, I want you to ask questions. I, want, I think it helps people when you are brave enough to ask questions. And, and even if you feel like the question may be challenging me in some way, it's not about me not being challenged. If I'm wrong, I'm wrong. But I want you guys to know, uh, I want you guys to, to get your questions answered and for us to have a good discussion. Anybody have any questions tonight about anything related to this topic? Okay, great. Okay, <laughs> Judge, come on up to the microphone because we're recording this. Your Honor, sir. Yes, sir. Uh, Brad, uh, I've always, in my own mind, uh, you know, the scriptures say that the devil is prowling. He is moving. Yeah. Uh, is he a, you know, uh, every second, every day, active in somebody's life or in some situation? Do, is there any time when he isn't? And I've always been told, and I understand that he is not omnipresent, mm -hmm. but how does he travel? Does yeah. his, you know, is he here in Columbus and in the next instant he's in Moscow? Yeah. You know, I, I don't yeah. know. Yeah. That, I just, I don't know yeah. if we know that. But. Yeah, I don't, I think the Bible's relatively silent on that. I would just say, Steve, that um, I, he's not, I don't think that there are as many fallen angels as there are um, angels, good angels. But that doesn't mean that there's not a lot, a lot of demons. I don't think there's any scriptural warrant to say that we have like our own personal demons that are plaguing us. But I think that there, I think we can deduce that he is very deceptive and strategic. And that there may be like looking back on that Daniel 10 verse where there's a particular devil in charge of what seems to be a particular geographic area. Uh, there may be devils and demons that specialize in social media. Uh, you know, I could see there being a demon that's, you think about C.S. Lewis's screw tape letters, you know, get him to do this and get him to do this. I do, I do think that there is clearly a strategy, and I think that it is far more, I think the spiritual world is far more complex than we can even imagine. In fact, Daniel's reaction to that vision in Daniel 10 was not him saying, okay, let's have, a, let's have this sort of, you know, spiritual warfare prayer and, and deliverance ministries, he fell down on his face and wept and kind of being overwhelmed. 
And so I think it is much more pervasive than we probably realize. But I don't want that to produce in us any kind of fear or timidity because the Bible doesn't take it that way. It just says, man, just, just, just live the ordinary means of grace, live in community, remember the gospel, and, 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 and we defeat them by the word of our testimony and the blood of the Lamb. So, yeah, that's the best I can do with that, Steve. Great question. Anybody else got any questions? Jump up to the mic. Yeah, jump up to the mic. Madeline, come on, girl. Watch out. You and your sister are not dressed alike tonight. Is this a, is this a changing or what, what's going on? Are we, is this a, is this a new phase? Okay, I'm sorry. You, you answer your question. So I was just wondering, um, why don't people like actually see angels anymore like they do in the Bible? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, well, Hebrews, boy, that's a great question. Hebrews actually uh, speaks about us maybe entertaining angels unaware. Uh, so I think that's certainly a possibility that's mentioned in the Bible. Like Abraham? Well, even in the New Testament time, but certainly Abraham did. And yes, kind of like Abraham, he was unaware of what's going on. They're very similar. Yes, excellent point. Um, I, I, I don't know. Uh, I think that there's probably a lot more of that that goes on than we realize. But there were certainly times, and I think this is the difference in redemptive history, when the angel of the Lord would show up, and it was just obvious that it was a heavenly being, and people would fall down, or like, you know, at the tomb or whatever. Um, that doesn't seem to be happening as much today, I think, is kind of getting to your point. That's a great observation, and I would just chalk it up as um, the Lord is dealing in different ways post-resurrection, that those appearances, those preliminary messengers of God's redemptive purposes that were necessary in the Old Testament are no longer necessary because of Christ's victory on the cross and resurrection. So we're in kind of a new age in redemptive history, if that, if that makes sense. That would that, be my best that guess makes at that. Sense. That's a great question. Thanks. Great question. I also had like a kind of random question that wasn't yeah. related to what you were talking about. Is that okay? Yeah. So I just wonder sometimes if animals go to heaven too or if it's just people. Uh, that's a great question. I don't think the Bible answers it. Um, and so I, I just don't have an answer for it. Um, uh, you know, if cats are in heaven, uh, <laughs> you know, we're just going to have to work that one out. Um, I was kind of hoping my sanctification would be complete by that time, but maybe there might be a little bit more to go. No, that's, a, that's an age-old question. That's a wonderful question. I think, you know, what I think we should do is that um, if there's a sense in our heart that like we've all loved, some of us don't, but many of us love pets. Um, we should thank God for that good gift. That's part of God's grace to us. But I would say even if there are animals in heaven or animals that we, I don't know. But if they're not, there's going to be no, nothing lacking in heaven for the good of the people of God. Thank you. And that goes even more so like just like maybe people that we know that we're wondering where they are with the Lord. We're not even going to be married in heaven. What's going to be the relationship between spouses in heaven? I, it's just glorious to think about, but the surpassing worth of the glory that's to be revealed to us is just unbelievable. And that's a wonderful thing to meditate on. So, that yeah, makes a lot of sense. Question. Thank yeah, you. Yeah. Anybody else got any questions? Yes. Tessa, is that you? Former, well, no, former Florida State yes, University yes, no, softball yeah, yeah. player. Played in the, played in the, no, no, let me brag on you. Oh, played, okay. in the, played in the World Series, college softball World Series. Yeah, that was a fun time. Were you in, a, a, time. No, don't, don't stop, stop. <laughs> Were you a national champion? Yeah, back in the day. Oh, no, no, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, you, we can you? talk later. We can right, talk right, later okay, about okay, that. Right. Okay, no, no, no. I was, there is a really cool testimony behind that. If you're really interested, I can share later. But um, I don't really know if this is a place for this. Hopefully it is. But I really want to encourage parents um, with, with this. Because I didn't grow up in church, but what mom and dad did really, really well was talk about how loving God and Jesus mm, was. Yes. Um, but n never really talked about Satan. Um, mm. And I, you know, I'm not a parent, but I, it would make sense. You don't want to, like, you mm -hmm. know, you'd rather focus on the love than, mm -hmm. you know, help. But mm -hmm. um, I struggled um, with, I, I think his strategy for me, and I'm sure a lot of people have experienced this too, mm -hmm. is just how he disguises himself as yes. 
you know, anything and everything. And for as me, as an angel of light, as an angel of light, yeah, Lucifer, chapter right? 11. Yeah, yeah. So um, one of my friends told me in college, like the best salesmen are, are the salesmen that you don't realize is selling you something. And that mm. was the enemy for me. Yeah. And so I really struggled with this in, in high school, and this was right before I became a Christian, when I became a Christian, and then when I was trying to follow after Christ, is I just made myself the enemy of God, and um, absolutely we need to take responsibility for our sin, yeah. but it led to this just really, really dark place where all sin in my life I felt so guilty of, and I hated myself, and I felt like I needed to reprimand myself. And I don't know if you or your child or somebody you know is struggling with this, but like I really struggled with self-harm. And it was because of that. It was because I felt so, sh I was in such shame and guilt. And the thing that got me out of this, you guys, is realizing that we have an enemy. And I was back there with Carolyn thinking like, you know, kind of like before football games or something, you, you look at the strategies of the, of the team you're playing. Like we would watch film on pitchers. Yeah. You know, we, we, would, we would try to strategize, all yeah. right, how am I going to go up to the plate? How am I going to hit this pitcher, yes. right? And I feel like that's kind of what we're doing right now. And yes. I feel like, you know, for our own selves, but also for your children, yeah. like, help them to know that they have an enemy out there. Because that was what, I, again, I didn't grow up in church, so I didn't know the armor of God. And it wasn't until I realized, oh, I have an enemy. And I guess probably my competitive nature, I'm like, oh, I need to stop feeling so sorry for myself. I need to yeah. stop doing the things that I'm doing to myself because Jesus Jesus bore the scar so I don't have to. He nailed my sins on the cross. And so I just, I just want to encourage you guys, especially as parents, like, it's a scary thing, yes, but, but talk about Satan to your kids because yeah. I didn't realize he existed. I, I thought it was just like a, well, I realized he existed, but I thought he was just like in hell, right? Mm -hmm. I didn't realize he, he, could, he could get me here. Mm -hmm. So um, I just want to encourage you guys to, to know that you have an enemy and he is yeah. working and he's working on your kids. Yeah. And yeah. as a teacher, it's scary. You're seeing it, you know, sooner and sooner, but all this to say, um, grateful that the Lord did reveal to me the, the schemes of the enemy and that we are, you know, yeah. equipped with armor of God. Yeah. So Amen. thank you. Thank you, Tessa. That was excellent. Um, to, I just want to just laud your courage in telling us all that and exhorting us to that. Amen. And Tessa, you made a really good point uh, that I, it made me, it dawned on me, like, why is the devil not seemingly active like he was back then? Well, to your point, the, the world in the first century was very aware of, of things, spiritual forces, and so it was, he, he comes in sort of a power play in this oppression of people. Part of the devil's tactic today may very well be what you articulated so well in this modern world where we think we're above it, where we're past all that primitive stuff, and, and you know, there's no, I, I, that the only real challenges I have is myself, it's the humanism of this world, and that is well said, amen, sister, thank you for sharing that, amen. Great word. Anybody else have any, any questions? I saw a hand up. Yes. The other Everard sister approaching the microphone wearing a shirt different from her sister. <laughs> so, um, like, I know that Lucifer used to be like an angel, and then um, I think it said, like, he like, led a rebellion against God. Mm -hmm. Is it possible for other angels to, like, become devils or, like, not? Yeah. Boy, that's a good question. Um, I don't think so. Because there is a verse in there somewhere, is it, whether it's in Jude or maybe Second Peter, that seems to allude that the other angels that did not rebel are being preserved. I'm sort of flying off the top of my head at this moment. Um, but that's a wonderful question, and I'm not 100% sure of that. My sense would be no, that, we're, that we're, we're, we're past that point in redemptive history. But maybe you can... Um, kind of investigate that and find me Sunday and help me answer that question better next time. That's a great question. Um, also, yeah. Yeah. so, like, is it, does God, like, make more angels and, like, and, like how more people are born constantly yeah. on earth? Like, do I don't think so. I don't think that there's any indication in Scripture that their angels are kind of being, you know, created afresh. I think that, I think that they were created and there is a great number of them and that's a finite number. That's my, that's my best a great question. Who are your parents? <laughs> Anybody else? Yes, Hardy. Hardy Hendren, VMI graduate. So I got a uh, nice 
open-ended, squishy question for you. Um, <laughs> My favorite. Yes, of course, mine too. Um, so I think probably, uh, probably like a lot of people in, uh, in your church, um, I spent a lot of time thinking about spiritual warfare on yeah. kind of the, uh, the geopolitical level, yeah. um, kind of in mass uh, as it yep. pertains to warfare combat. Yep. Um, also, you know, just very overt atrocity, yep. um, sex trafficking yep. is uh, getting, getting a lot of attention right now. Uh, just curious if uh, you can maybe offer some pastoral reflections that you've had uh, kind of where I think it's very apparent that um, a lot of spiritual darkness is intersecting with a lot of very overt uh, physical atrocity. Yeah. That's that's not a squishy, that's an important question. And it kind of ties in a little bit with what Tessa was saying and uh, and the Everard girls is that that there is, um, I would point to Daniel 10 as giving us a kind of evidence of their clearly being strategies. And then I would point to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, which says that, um, verse 3, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 3, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So there's this blindness that is a, the lowercase g gods of this world are at work in blinding the God's people. And then I think you look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, I think it is. It talks about in the last days, men will be lovers of pleasure. That there seems to be this decadent, there's this descent into debauchery that is happening in the world. And, and clearly that is demonic warfare. Clearly that is spiritual activity. Clearly that is Satan wanting to destroy the image of God in humanity. And clearly it's concerning, but I would just say that the response of the average Christian then should be to be a healthy Christian in a local church and care deeply about the people around you. And not to be somebody who um, just sort of merely reads the headlines and has all these theories. It's just to do the ordinary work of living in community, just pressing against darkness in your day, in your own soul, and helping other people do that, and that is the best thing that Christians can do. And pray, pray. That's why, if you notice, we pray often in our pastoral prayer for our government authorities, because clearly there are spiritual forces of wickedness that are in charge of governments and countries and philosophies and ideologies. And so we want to see believers, or at least people that have a, a sense and believe that a boy is a boy and a girl is a girl, should be elected to uh, office, and that is major, and that's happening now. That would just be my pastoral reflection. Thank you. Yeah, great point, Hardy. Good question. Anybody else got anything? Uh, yeah, go ahead. You, you can, yeah. Hey, hey, I just want to say I really appreciate uh, this teaching. Um, and just, uh, you know, thinking more like at a global level, Yeah. Uh, being from Africa, yeah. I was, I was yeah. having a conversation with my mom, actually, ironically, uh, last week. And, you know, they've been here. They're here for, for six months visiting us. And she said to me, uh, you know, it's been very refreshing uh, coming to church, coming to Cross Point uh, with you. Uh, because in Africa, it's becoming, her words were, so boring, you know, it's just like, it's just really annoying, Yeah. Uh, because uh, it's like, they're making it a point that at the end of the services, uh, after the, the preacher preaches, we sing songs, and then it seems like people are invited to come up front uh, for this uh, uh, deliverance, Yeah. you know, this deliverance stuff, yeah. uh, and uh, so... My whole point is that there's such a misunderstanding yes. uh, of, of, you know, spiritual warfare. Um, and um, I, I really think it's important, you know, just this handout, hold on to it. Yeah. If you ever go on the mission field or something yeah, like, yeah. you know, to Africa or to other countries, yeah, yeah. uh, you'd be amazed at how pervasive yeah. uh, the misunderstanding yep. of, yep. of yep. spiritual warfare is. 
and really the misapplication of the gospel. Yep, yep. Um, so anyhow, I just want to say that and just yeah. say thank you yeah, for, thank for, you. That, for teaching thank that. Thank you, Ruben. That's yeah. encouraging. You know, I was thinking about that deliverance ministry, just that idea. I'm not saying that, that, that there aren't some people that need to be delivered of things, but focusing on deliverance. But first of all, the New Testament doesn't take us that direction. It doesn't say to focus on those things. People that are caught up in those type of deliverance type situations are like people that don't ever exercise, eat like garbage, and think they can take one pill and it will cause them to lose 50 pounds and be in shape. When the Lord has given us the regular means, gather with Christians, read your Bible, confess your sin, take communion, you know, be one, pray, these sort of like do the regular, you know, block and tackle stuff. Don't try and throw a bomb on every play, you know, uh, to use an Ed Grant sports analogy, you like move the ball past, like do, don't try and shoot a half court shot every play, which is what deliver, do the regular means of, and that is spiritual warfare. And through the means of the ordinary ministry of the gospel in the local church, God will deliver his people. So, yeah. Thank you, Ruben. Andrew, was that you back there that was coming up? Yeah. So, just a thought that uh, I had had, kind of based off of uh, the young lady's question earlier. Um, I do feel like angels, um, their interaction is just as prevalent as it was back in the day mm -hmm. and there's two points to have this and the first one is um, I feel like a lot of why we don't maybe inherently see that is because one of Satan's biggest tactics is distraction yeah and the way that if you look at uh, just like major milestones in history throughout the 19th century everything especially in Western culture, meaning like America, um, everything is based off the newest, the yeah. flashiest, yep. the fastest, and that's the most powerful. Yes, yes. And that's, that's not that those are inherently wrong, yeah. but when the pursuit of that becomes a norm, you almost in a way get desensitized to the small things. Mm -hmm. So, yep. you know, 500 BC when there isn't electricity, someone lights a candle, that's, that's a lifesaver. Yeah. So we kind of lose, that's kind of, I guess, also like a precautionary thing I'm bringing up. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't, get, don't get too distracted in 2023 that your mind is moving so fast that you can't see the yeah. small yeah, yeah, yeah. little footsteps. And Andrew, that's a great point. I would categorize that as a scheme of the devil yeah. in our time and place. And the, that's a scheme. Other part of that is um, something I never thought about. Um, I was in the military years and years ago. And, well, not uh, that long ago. You're still a young guy. You know? <laughs> um, in Vietnam. A guy I served with um, who actually went on to go to, um, I don't know the technical term, but uh, he learned about the Bible in college. Yeah, uh -huh. Semi Semin oh, seminary. seminary. Uh -huh. um, he talked to this about, I mean, it never really – uh, click for me until the past couple years um, that I didn't really realize how prevalent the devil and his demons are yeah. within all of our lives on a daily basis. Yeah. And so I started to di dissect, like, okay, why is that? And I remember what he told me, and I, for the most part, agree with it, is we as a culture have been so desensitized to violence, mm -hmm. um, and a lot of that is action movies, because yep. if you look at uh, an action movie 50 years ago yep. and compare it with yes. the newest John Wick, the fight scenes are very different. They're more gruesome. Yeah. And, and that, he said there's two parts of that, and one is he believed that that is Satan's tactic to desensitize yes. us to the power of the cross. Yeah. 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 So you look at people in the 18th century, they hear the message of the cross, and they're blown away because that level of yep. violence and, and gore was unheard of. Yeah. But then you look at it in 2023, and it's not as, I don't know if impressive is the right word. I understand what you say. That's a good point. Um, yeah. Yeah. So anyways, that's yeah. just yeah. two yeah. thoughts yeah. I had. Those are excellent thoughts. And I, and I, and I would, I would want to end it with this because we're running late on time. 
I think you articulated in kind of real world context, Ephesians 6, be aware of the schemes of the devil. Tessa talked about it, angel of light, all these kind of cultural things. And so here's what I would say to conclude, and I'll stick around and answer any questions. We have an elders meeting, and so if you guys can go ahead and get started after, and I'll stick around and I can miss some of that meeting. But here's what I would say is that piggybacking on what you said, Andrew, and others have said, I would say the devil is far more active than we can really imagine, and he hates us far more passionately than we can even ever dream. But we are far more loved and safe in Christ than we could ever hope or dream or imagine. And so every Christian is called to spiritual warfare, and that spiritual warfare is remembering the gospel, gathering with other Christians, reading the word, confessing our sins, being real, helping other people do that, encouraging one another, all of these ordinary things that's called the Christian life. And God has given it to us. And praise God, we have a church full of people that do this. So you guys are, you guys, I mean, you guys are warriors for the Lord. Think of yourself that way. You're not just an ordinary Christian. You're a warrior for the Lord. So praise God. Well, let me pray. Um, thanks for your patience. Thanks for all the great comments and the courage to get up and ask these questions. You've helped us. You've helped me. Next week will be our last session on the providence of God. Thanks for coming. Lord, thank you for this time together in your word. Uh, Lord, I pray right now if there's somebody in this room uh, that, as Tessa so bravely testified to her own life, that might be in a similar situation or they just feel like they're being drawn and quartered by the enemy. Or maybe tonight, let it be a decisive moment, a decisive turn of the battle where they remember the gospel that, that Jesus has disarmed the accuser of the brethren. He's canceled the debt and that their greatest problem has been solved in Christ, and it was your wrath, not the devil's schemes. Let them see that with clear eyes and an honest heart before you and, and produce in them a, a steadiness that helps them fight. And Lord, let them not do that alone, but give them the courage to bring other Christians into their battle and raise up more and more everyday, ordinary warriors in the life of this church to wage this war for the glory of God and for the good of your people. And I pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Thanks for coming, guys.